Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Art De Roche of The Athletic, and David Priest, the coach and columnist. We all know this has been a unique season. Never before have so many players been running on empty, physically and particularly mentally. In Liverpool's case, it's hard to avoid the impression that they've missed the adrenaline rush of the crowd. Their season will be on the line at an empty Anfield on Wednesday night. So, Art, can they fashion a trademark comeback against Real Madrid? Well, the key word there is trademark. I think with that, we have to remember it is Liverpool. We can't rule them out of actually coming back against Real Madrid this week. But I do think it will be very difficult for them. I know Sadio Mane, for instance, was rested on the weekend, came off the bench in the win against Aston Villa. But even with that, I do feel the way that Real Madrid went about the first leg, winning 3-1, it just makes their their tasks that much more difficult, even though they have got the away goal with them going into the second leg. One thing that I think probably helps them in some cases is just the way they've gone about their business since, since returning from the international break. Of course, barring that one game against Real Madrid, I think they've done well to say, meet the demands of what's been needed. And in terms of the game on Wednesday night, I I just think even though they probably will give Real Madrid a good go, I think it may just be too much for them to go, go and complete the comeback. But I do think that they will be more than motivated to go and do that. And I, it wouldn't be a total surprise if they were to do so. Yeah. As a, you know, as a former player and a coach, David, you know, do we make too much of the particular challenge of of playing in front of an empty stadium? And you know, I know all clubs are distinctive culturally. Liverpool's more emotionally driven than most clubs. Do you think all that conflation of issues, particularly around Trent Alexander-Arnold, almost counts against them sometimes? Do they care too much? Yeah, there's two sides of it, isn't it? You know, that, that emotional response that they have to, to everything either way, it's, you know, it can either help help or hinder people. And with Liverpool, of course, it's riding on the wave of, of emotion at Anfield. They can, you know, it gets them through games. I don't think anybody's in any doubt that if it was a full house that we're, that we're, we're talking about that they're playing in front of, you know, nobody would count against Liverpool turning this round. As it is, it's it's going to be difficult, you know. It, it's amazing how that easy that that the football has adapted to to not having any people in the stadium. You know, I know from my own experience, the first one or two games is is really strange, and it, it feels like a, a training a training match. But I think once you get into it and you get used to it, you know, it, it just it, it doesn't it doesn't take people long to to adjust to it. So I think it's you know. There is the, those two sides of the coin again, but yeah, I think when when it's more of a level playing field and home advantage counts much less than it than it did when when crowds are there, then you know you've got to say that you look at Real Madrid and the way they performed against Liverpool in that first game, they look the favourites to me. Yeah, what do you think the the overriding lessons from that first leg are? are... I think just that you have to attack the game as soon as you can in knockout football. That That's the main takeaway for me anyway, where Real Madrid did that from minute one. Vinicius Junior 
stole the game really, as did Tony Cruz with that wonderful pass to him. And I think that just their approach to the game was a bit more urgent. When you come to this stage in the Champions League and the in the Europa League as well, just in any knockout competition, if if you're not playing at your best from the first minute, I think you're going to get found out. And that's what happened. Even I spoke about, say that more attacking players there, but when you look at the defensive players for Liverpool in the night, they weren't missing per se, but just being off off your gears by that one or two seconds, I think, told in the end, especially with those those Cruz, Tony Cruz balls over the top, that's where, where you see the difference. And I think that's probably where that factors in most for these games and especially in terms of a, a learning curve from the first leg to the second leg. And I think that's something that Liverpool have been great at over the past few years in particular under Jurgen Klopp start, starting games as they mean to go on. But as you mentioned, the physical and mental toll of this season's probably had some some effect on them and played into that a little bit, I think. Mm. There was a very deliberate strategy employed there, wasn't there, David, in the first leg, putting you know long balls behind that defence. When you've got a defence which is identified as a critical weakness, what's the role of the goalkeeper in that? And I'm thinking specifically about Alisson. Does he need to be almost more assertive in those sort of circumstances? I think the way that he's played over the last last couple of seasons since he arrived at the club, I mean, there's very little you would say that he would need to change about his game. I know that you maybe see it more these days because there's no crowd that he is a very vocal keeper from the very moment he came into the club he becomes an extra coach on the pitch and and when, and when it's when people are in the stadiums and you can still notice how vocal somebody is it just shows you the influence that they have and and how vocal they really are but i think that i keep going back to it the, the, with the changes Goalkeepers and defenders there the, the needs to be consistency there in teams in in any department in the team and most of all, that needs to be the case so they can get those relationships. And you've seen that, you know, when the different uh, permutations of the the settled defenders, especially when new players like Kabak come in, uh, into the team, you know, there is that insecurity and in they're sort of unsure about each other's actions so they, they can't back each other up. But I think that with with Alisson, I think it's it's not a case of really changing his game a lot. I think it's just the more they work together, the more they get a better understanding, and and the, the better they will be. But you know that Real Madrid game, like you said, the runs in behind from Vinicius, and it, it's if if Liverpool did have a defensive weakness, it was always that. That's you know the high press leaving the space in behind, but they just don't have Van Dijk and Gomez and the pace that they possess to to recover into those positions. That, that's the big difference for me. Mm. Do you think also uh, that the balance of Liverpool's midfield needs to be right this time around? Because as Klopp says, they need to be perfect to get through here. Definitely. And I, I, I know this probably won't happen anytime soon, but I'm just waiting to see Trent Alexander-Arnold play midfield because I think when, when you watch Liverpool anyway, he picks up those central positions so often that he pretty much is a, another central midfielder. If we saw that again for the for the goal against Aston Villa where he picks the ball up in central midfield, drifts off to the left and that's then where, where he gets the space to shoot. But I know that's very unlikely and probably very wishful thinking for my, from myself for this week. But yeah, definitely I think in terms of that midfield, what t- the type of player that probably is needed most is just someone that can drive through the midfield, like say Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain can or showed that he could in uh, previous Champions League runs. I think the 17-18 season was probably the best example of that where he was able to take Liverpool up the pitch. As we saw at Arsenal say when he was on the wing, his pace and then also he had a very good finish in those areas and I think maybe that's somewhere where they could look to improve from, from the first leg, just being a bit more as you said, Mike, earlier, assertive, but not in terms of a goalkeeper sense, in terms of how they look to attack Real Madrid from midfield. And that's where maybe the balance could sway to maybe 60, 65% more attacking compared to being a bit more conservative. And maybe that is the way to go forward. Just look to blitz Real Madrid because we know that Liverpool can do that. Mm. Klopp? David says that he's unconcerned by 
Sadio Mane's commitments for club and country over the last three years, which have been really extensive, haven't they? Do you think he should be concerned? I think it's a it's a general concern of the team. You think over the past four seasons, the, the type of football that they play and the success they've had, meaning the amount of games that they've played, uh, it, it's just it, it's really led to a culmination of things. Of course, there's the injuries, some which you know can't really be accounted for with regards to, to fitness. But this season is is has just been maybe one step too far from where they've needed a they need the season to have a, a bit of a break from from everything that they've done. The, the, the amount they've achieved in such a short space of time, it's going to take its toll. And, and I think that, you know, even if they go to the Champions League this round and they, and they still make the Champions League the top four in the league, considering everything that's gone on this season, you know, you've still got to see it as some sort of success. Maybe it's not success compared to what they've they've produced in the last two seasons. But certainly, like I said, given the circumstances, they can't see any sort of failure. Yeah, I'm just looking at... You know, we all have favourite players, don't we? One of my favourite players is Luka Modric. Now, there he is, 35, still an absolutely key figure at one of the world's great clubs. You know, wonderful technical player. The consistency of purpose more than anything else really marks him out to me how good do you think he has been art i think it from my perspective it's been quite difficult to judge his career <laughs> i know you I know why <laughs> yeah i think you know why <laughs> mike yeah. but um remembering him in the premier league i think what one thing that stood out was he was just different to other midfielders in terms of he would look to take that shot on from outside the box whereas Obviously, there were standout midfielders like, say, Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard that would do the same. But other midfielders in the Premier League, common midfielders, wouldn't do that. And I think the way he's adapted his game since moving to Real Madrid has probably been the most remarkable thing in terms of being able to sit deeper and control games. Him and Tony Cruz in midfield just ooze control at times. And I think that's where, especially in the, the 2018 World Cup, was probably as big as the goals that he scored in that tournament, just his ability to see Croatia through games. And obviously that led to him winning the Ballon d'Or that year. And I think, yeah, in terms of going from where he was when he initially joined Real Madrid, where he was viewed as the worst signing of that year, I think, was it? And to where he is now, captaining them to their first back-to-back El Clasico wins in La Liga since I think it's the 2007-2008 season. I think the way he's kind of gone about his career and just almost moulding himself into different roles has probably spoken to his talent as well as his intelligence, which I can see why he'd be one of your favourite players, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's that club, you know, Real Madrid, is, is a, it's a political snake pit, isn't it, really, when you think about it. Yet you've got Zinedine Zidane being almost completely unaffected by all the the noise is off, if you like. Now, is he a strangely underrated coach, given his achievements, David? You think about it, three Champions League titles, I think is it 50, 50 ties under him, they've won 31 of them, 112 goals. That is some record. Yeah, it is, and I think just... You could always have it levelled at him that he, you know, he, he hasn't coached anywhere else, so we, we don't know... We don't know where his, uh, you know, his strengths, real strengths and weaknesses lie, and and you know what other problems he could face at other clubs. We don't know how he'd handle those, so it's it's difficult to gauge him in that respect. But sometimes managers just sue clubs. You know, they've gone back to him for a reason. Don't really like when we talk about you know players who know the club, like you know when we talk about maybe Solskjaer, United, and, and the United way. But certainly, it, it certainly helps that to have somebody at Real Madrid who knows how to handle every situation in the club, knows how to handle the pressure. And you talk about, you know, all the stuff that's going off the pitch. The biggest or the, the most credit you can give him is that he focuses on the football. Managers can sometimes allow outside forces, distract them or allow them to become excuses for, for what's happening on the pitch or if, they, if they're not getting success on the pitch. Well, I think... Is it if you can just keep them focused on the football, then the rest of uh, all the uh, circus around the club, it, it becomes immaterial, really. 
Mm. Yeah, speaking of, of coaches, head coaches are Thomas Tuchel. Uh, Chelsea are back in Seville. This time's a home team and probably should be comfortable against Porto. What's struck me about Tuchel is that he's so tactically literate. Do you think that's his greatest strength? And do you think that will also enable him to solve, you know, that puzzle up front that he's got to try and balance that team offensively? I do. And I think the balance doesn't just come from, say, the attacking players. But when you look at how he's played in particular, using, say, Callum Hudson-Odoi as a wing-back, that's where I see his mind just working, the, the cogs in his mind just going round and round, where he's trying to think, what's the best way to get this team most balanced to where I can use Callum Hudson-Odoi basically as a winger, but still have the defensive security to have, say, three centre-backs and Callum Hudson-Odoi also also work defensively. And then just bring in Kai Havertz, for instance, as that false nine, as he did against Crystal Palace, where he can drift left and right and still have an amazing game. And I think in terms of the way he set set his team up over the course of his tenure so far, it's always an interesting <laughs> watch to see the team news come out and then see how that uh, actually manifests itself on the pitch rather than on paper. I think he is one of the coaches this season in the Premier League that is probably the most interesting in terms of looking to pick their brains and what they're actually looking for from a game and is probably another one of the, those coaches who plans for a game uh, like a specific game rather than having just one blanket kind of rule in terms of a tactic. He he looks like a guy that really does take the opposition into account and looks to see how he can unpick them best. And that's something that I've been really, I wouldn't say impressed with because that maybe underplays it a little bit, but one of the things I've been intrigued by since he's arrived in England. Yeah, as such, David, do you think he is particularly suited for the the challenges of European football. You know, lest we forget, he he actually got PSG to the final last year, didn't he? Well, last season anyway. Yeah, exactly. But I, I also think that, you know, we talk about his, his, his tactical flexibility. It, even from the Premier League, you know, what he did with against Crystal Palace at the weekend to what he'll do against Porto, it's... It's still very similar, you know. We, we talk about Kai Havertz being in, in that that false nine. E, even at the very elite level, if he's playing that false nine, you've got two wide men. It means that it, it poses a problem for the central defenders because they don't know what to do. They've got nobody to pick up, so it would be very easy for them, a lot easier for them and and, and Pepe for Porto, of course, to feel much more comfortable if they're in a physical battle with a, a Giroud or a, a Tammy Abraham. Whereas now they're, they're, they're kind of left a little bit sort of redundant in Chelsea's build-up and leads to a lot of confusion. And and then the movement of the Chelsea forward players can cause them a lot more problems. So it's, yeah, I, I think that it, it doesn't matter whether it's the, the Champions League or the Premier League. You know, the, the way that he approaches games is just, yeah, he seems to have a real knack for, for knowing exactly what's needed in each game. Just on what David said there, I think... That has really helped Mason Mount as well because when you've got wing backs going forward and also the save the false nine of Kai Havertz, it just allows him to roam wherever he wants, even though he played, say, as a right winger on paper against Crystal Palace. He was just floating around the pitch and was as effective as he could be, say, as just a, a conventional number 10. And I think that's where he is probably coming into his game a lot more now as well under Thomas Tuchel, even though he was impressing under Frank Lampard. I do think that's an area where Thomas Tuchel's tactics have helped free him up as well in terms of being able to pick up the ball in much better spaces where defenders are a bit more redundant, to use David's uh, phrasing, and it just allows him to do that much more on the pitch, I think. Mm, yeah. Do you think, we look at, if we're looking at coaches, Pep Guardiola... You know, heavens above, he, he shouldn't be second-guessed after a season like they're having. But, you know, there was a little bit of, of murmuring in the in the choir stalls on Saturday about him making seven changes against Leeds, David. Now, surely with such a commanding lead in the Premier League, that's just prudent management before a big game, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think if, if there's one 
one game where he was able to do that and probably in his own mind if he if he was going to weaken his side and, and lose to a, to a team it would be to a Marcel or Bielsa team an act of homage yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it just gives everyone uh, it keeps everyone happy but um, it's obvious now that Premier League's up more or less won and whether that was the the, the first goal or whether it's Champions League which is his main aim I think now that we've got this stage, he can afford to do that. And, and there was a lot of changes. And, and as, as a manager that he is, he probably wasn't he, he wasn't going into that game thinking, oh, well, I can afford to lose this game. He'll still be going into win the game. Of course he would. But, you know, looking from an outside perspective and, and away from him, yeah, I think it was the right thing to do. And the players that he needs on a Champions League night this week, you know, he can give, afford to give them a little bit of a rest. And I think it's a sensible thing to do. Mm. That's an intriguing tie still, simply because Dortmund, who are, who are still seven points out of the Champions League places in, in the Bundesliga, you know, their season's dependent on Wednesday night. Ah, I'd like you please just to dwell on Jude Bellingham, man of the match in 3-2 win over Stuttgart on Saturday, increasingly insistent calls for him to make the Euros squad. Just how good do you think he is at the moment, but also how good can he be? I think he's phenomenal at the moment. You f- almost forget how young some of these players are. Like, he's only 17, Kaiosaka is only 19. And it's ridiculous to think that they weren't even live 20 years ago. And I think when <laughs> you look at Jude Bellingham's performance uh, at the Etihad in particular, it could have been even better if that goal stood. It should have stood. But to respond by scoring his, I think it was his first, his first actual goal for Dortmund on the weekend was great stuff. And I think the way the first leg ended with them getting the the away goal, even though Phil Foden obviously responded within a few minutes and scored the winner for Manchester City, I think they they will be looking at that game thinking they can go and take it, especially just with how, even though there are, there have been disappointments in the, in the league throughout the league, and we've seen that with the way that, say, Erling Haaland has reacted to certain draws, even not just defeats, draws, where he's very upset that Dortmund haven't won the game. I think they will be looking at this week as one where they can go and attack Manchester City, especially maybe after the Leeds game to rub some more salt in the wounds. Yeah, I noticed that Jaden Sancho's returning to training. Well, one would imagine two late for him to turn up on, on Wednesday night. What do you think about the threat posed by Dortmund, David? Is there a chance that they could uh, unsettle City? Yeah, of course. You know, the, again, same with the Liverpool situation, you you probably give them more of a chance if it was a, as a full house, you know, 90,000 Dortmund fans there. But um, a team with uh, Erling Haaland in is, is always going to be a threat. He's... <sighs> He, of course, he's tipped to go to a far bigger club, tipped to go to somebody like City, and he's always going to be a danger to them. And that's the one thing they've got to count against, really. Coach Jude Bellingham made a big impression in the first game, probably a big impre- much bigger impression than, than Holland did. But I think the, the, these youngsters, especially these two, these are the ones that are, 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 City are going to have to be more aware of. And you'd like to think that you know, if they can take care of Holland, then they can take care of the tie. Yeah. Just... On that, on the point of younger players, current trends, both those players that you mentioned there, Dave, Haaland and Bellingham, are going to be huge transfers in time. Some maybe, you know, maybe Haaland before Bellingham. It's interesting to see that Raheem Sterling's following the lead of Kevin De Bruyne by not using an agent to negotiate his new contract. Do you think that's the start of a trend amongst players, top players? Possibly. I think when you look at how Kevin De Bruyne looked at his contract situation, it's speaking from my point of view, it's very smart in terms of assessing properly what his options are, then looking at how Manchester City match his ambitions by using, say, data analysts, which is how, when you look at, say, how uh, sports writing, for instance, has gone, it's gone very much down that path in the last couple of years. I know guys at The Athletic, like Tom Morville, for instance, and Mark Carey, they are very good at that side of the writing game. <laughs> um, mm. And then 
with I guess with players taking that into consideration, they're they're putting more power into themselves with that, and I don't think that's a that's a problem. I know sometimes player power can be looked at as a negative in terms of maybe more of the influence they have on, say, players around them. But if they're looking at basically their their livelihood, I think they should have more power. They should have the most power, I think, more than the clubs. And I think if they can do that by, say, looking at data and matching up how they've been playing, how they've been used in a certain team, if they're if they're actually vital to the team, not just a cog in a machine, that really helps them as well in terms of deciding, do I want to continue at this club? And the way, say, Kevin De Bruyne and Raheem Sterling are being used at Manchester City, they are very important. And I think that's where, say, the power is a good thing, where they can properly assess what's going on in their careers at that moment and how how they can move on from that and use that as a platform to further build what has already been, what have already been very good careers for themselves. Do you know what, Mike? I think this is a a great chance for clubs to actually put the reins on their spending and on on the wage bill, simply because I think we, we talk about the cases of Raheem Sterling and Kevin De Bruyne where it's very obvious, you know, you don't really have to look at the data to realize what they, they they give to the clubs and and what they add to the to the team when they're included in it. So they get the money that they, they deserve in that respect. But if clubs do this more often with every player, then in a lot of cases I think it will it will give them a, an opportunity to say, well, okay, you're asking for this much money, you think you're worth this much, but here's actually what the raw data says and that they can show whether they've been improving over the last two or three seasons, whether they've, you know, they're actually, the output's dipping. So it it, it gives them something else to to bargain with to to bring the, bring down what the the, the players are asking as well. Because, you know, at the end of every season, when the clubs and the the secretaries of clubs go away and and they're, they're negotiating, you know, they're talking about the next season, the following season, and they're trying to negotiate the, um, you know, the schedules and, and everything. The talk is always about that players get paid too much. We need to bring the wage bills down. It should be performance-related pay so that if they do well, they get what they deserve and, you know, we're not being bled dry by players. And nobody ever does anything about it. And this is the one thing that, like I said, that can bring maybe... I don't know if bringing in the lines the right phrase to use, but certainly give them a little bit more bargaining power and bringing down the, the the price that they're having to pay for for player wages. Yeah, I do think it's a bit of a tipping point in many ways. Yeah, you know, and to your point about our game, uh, I've always been a words man, not a numbers man. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's look at uh, the other tie, Bayern in Paris. They've still got everything to play for, haven't they? Are Definitely, I think with the way that the first leg went, half an hour in was two 0 up. I think everyone was thinking this is going to be a massacre, but it didn't turn out that way. And I think with how, especially how Bayern started the second half, they they should have hope that they can go go to Paris and and actually put on a great game like they did in the Champions League final last season and come out with a win. That being said. With Kylian Mbappe on the other side, I don't know if they can do that. The guy is just ridiculous for the, for a 22-year-old. Even though, say, maybe Erlen Haaland is the man of the moment in the Champions League this year, I think the, the output, both in terms of goals and assists, the overall influence Mbappe has on that Paris Saint-Germain team is outstanding. And if he turns up like he did against Barcelona, like he has done in knockout stage games throughout the past few seasons, both at PSG and Monaco, then Bayern are going to be in for trouble again. Mm. I suppose when you look at Bayern, though, they did have 31 shots in that first leg and surely they can't be as wasteful again. You know, we were talking about analysing players there, Dave. Chippo Moting, what did both clubs, i.e. PSG and Bayern, see in him you know, most of us look at him and, th- and thought, well, he was a pretty unremarkable Stoke City forward. What did they see? 
Well, I mean, you, first of all, you, you you've got to give Stoke a bit of uh, a bit of credit for for seeing that before everybody. And I think I was in the same boat as you as well. You know, you know, when he, especially when he first went to PSG and he scoring goals. I think he scored the goal in the semi semi final last year. You know, and you're wondering, think you're wondering to yourself, how how has this happened? You know, but it, of course, he's somebody who's who fits elite football physically. He's. Uh, He's someone who who can be added to any side, but but also he, he he's shown with his goals as well. The last two seasons, scoring goals at late stages of Champions League, that shows he deserves to be where he where he is now. And out out of, out of all the ties, I just think this is the one that's is most in the balance and can go either way. It's the hardest one to call. Mm. There is a real sense of jeopardy about this one, Art. Doesn't that just prove the Futility and sterility of this proposed, you know, Swiss model come Super League blueprint that everyone's talking about. That you've got a tie like this, which is the essence of European competition, not some lucrative slog through group games where they don't really matter. Yeah, and I think we saw that even with the PSG Barcelona game. I know I spoke about it a little bit earlier, but that was a game where you're thinking, where was I when this happened? I know we were all in our living rooms, but it's a monumental moment. I think just the way, especially the way the the first leg went with the snow in April in Germany, <laughs> and it's <laughs> completely unique. But you're you're there watching greatness. I think, especially considering this, how early in the knockout stages this is, that's not something I feel that any fan, any football fan, let alone say a writer or a coach would want to just dispel and kind of just make it something that's a forgotten thing in football. I, I don't think anyone that has pure intentions for the game would want that. And with the tie still very much in the balance, that just goes to prove that even though the first leg was so encapsulating, anything can still happen. It's kind of like those um, Liverpool-Chelsea knockout games from about 10... To, or maybe 15 years ago now, <laughs> just looking at the calendar, thinking it was maybe 10 years ago, but it's even longer. But yeah, I think in terms of a tie, this is probably, as David said, the most most enticing of the second legs. And I, I really can't wait to see what happens. You know, we, we talk about players who can decide this tie. I think out of all the players on the pitch with Bayern and PSG, I actually think Keelan Navas is going to have the biggest part to see I think uh, initially when he was at Real Madrid, I, I, I didn't really, I won't say didn't really rate him, but I wouldn't have put him amongst the elites of goalkeepers. The, the move to PSG has really invigorated him. You know, listen, he, he, Champions League winner, multiple Champions League winner with Real Madrid, and that, that's nothing to be sniffed at. But as soon as he's moved away, he's... he's Proved his importance this PSG side, and none more than the like we said the the, the game the first leg against Bayern because the chances they created he denied them um, many times and again I think they're going to be they're going to have to rely on him again to to get through. Yeah, lot on the line in European football. Arsenal, Art. I think European football is essential financially. I think they've not failed to qualify since I think it's ninety five ninety six season. Their season's going to be over, isn't it, if they go out in Prague? So do they have the biggest questions of all to answer this week, do you think? Definitely. The way they went about the first leg was just, I wouldn't say shocking, because the way Arsenal have played at certain points this season hasn't been impressive at all. But very much there was a feeling of too much respect, I feel, in the first leg, where the plans from Mikel Arteta were clear say, watching from the press box where they looked to just restrict space in front of the goalkeeper, but they didn't actually forcefully press him, which maybe caused some difficulties for him because his distribution wasn't great, but not too many to the point where Arsenal were creating meaningful turnovers very high at the pitch to take advantage. And that's where, even though Nicola Pepe comes on and scores the, the opening goal, you still leave yourselves vulnerable to a point which was very similar to the Olympiacos game last season where they're messing around with the ball in their own defensive third. They concede a corner 
and then a goal comes from that corner. And that's something that Arsenal still need to get rid of in their game. But in terms of the second leg, probably the main advantage is it's away from home. Even if it was at home, they would have to attack the game. But I think there will be more incentive to do that this time around because it is away from home. And if they do get that away goal, it can swing the mood. It can swing the mood exceptionally well for them, especially with how the team has looked, say, since the first leg with Gabriel Martinelli coming in to the side again. First start since his game against Manchester United in January, I believe. And he's got a goal. But aside from the goal, he was very good in terms of the press off the ball, which is something that's always been associated with him, as well as being able to take players on on the outside, as well as coming in on the inside and having a shot. And I think he will be key on Thursday because he brings that urgency that Arsenal were lacking in the first leg. And if Arsenal are to to go, go ahead and win the game, they will have to be at it from minute one. As we said earlier, that Liverpool weren't in the first leg against Real Madrid in knockout football. Arsenal have done relatively well in that sense in the FA Cup last season which was when that was most most evident but I do think that this time around they will have to be at it from from the get-go to to get anything from the game because even though they were maybe in control of the game last week there were moments where Slavia Prague could have gone ahead and they won't want that uh, this time around. Mm. You've been around a lot of dressing rooms David in your time the Arsenal one seems delicate, to put it mildly. You know, obviously we don't know, we're not privy to exactly what's going on at the training ground or in quiet corners. But there does seem a sense of unease, almost like the ghost of Meza Ozil is still lurking around the, the changing room. What's your reading of it? When you have those sort of individual agendas going on in the background, does that affect performance, collective performance? Yeah, I mean, it, it, looking from the outside, you, you, you certainly would say that. I know that a lot of the rumours and, and talk that was coming out of the dressing room this weekend, if true, you know, the players are, are offended by seemingly being blamed by their manager. I actually think Arteta's been quite protective. I, I don't think he's been, don't think he's been overly critical of them. You know, whenever there's a bad performance, he's always the first one to say, you know, this is my responsibility, I put the team out there, etc. And whenever I hear this, like I said, as as, as long as they, they, these what's coming out is true, whenever I hear this about, you know, players being unhappy about their, their managers being critical of them, even if they are being critical of them, it's responsibility, it's collective responsibility that they need to take. It's not a case of feeling as if they've been let down by their manager. They shouldn't need to be told by the, the, the letting the, the team down or letting the club down or, or whatever. And I think it's just, yeah, I, I don't like it at all when, when it happens to, to dressing rooms because it, it just shows the, the lack of character and the lack of togetherness inside there. And I think that, um, you know, we talk about recruit. We always talk about recruitment in, in terms of talent and what what their output is out on the pitch. But I think going forward now, what's going to be huge is is character and what characteristics do they show that and maybe is less tangible. And and first and foremost, when it comes to to football, that's really what matters the most. You, you can have the most talented players, most talented dressing room in the world, but if they're not the right characters, then you're not going to get the the most from them. I hate, I hate saying this about Arsenal, but it's it, it always seems to be the case with them. And there's been there's still turnover of players. There's you know there's been some players like Mustafi and, and people like that who and, and Özil who seem deemed to be the problem, and they've been shifted out. And I, th- I think that's maybe there needs to be more to be weeded out and they need to go more in a different direction. The younger players seem to be the ones that are holding the club together at the moment and it's a big blow from that Saka was injured yesterday as well and he's going to be a big miss for them. Yeah. Do you concur with that, Art? Do you think Arteta deserves more support? To an extent, I feel that in some ways, I, I wouldn't say the players would be, say, maybe revolting is the wrong word, but I wouldn't go that far because when you look at the current group of players that are there, I, I do feel that there is a togetherness there, even though 
say Pierre Mikabamia hasn't performed as as many would have liked to this season. He is a very popular captain, both with say the players that maybe he is most well known to be connected with, but also with the younger players in the squad who have credited him for being very welcoming and almost letting them settle into the squad. I think probably the best case of that has been with Bukayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli both last season. They both talked about how the, the effect Aubameyang had on both of them. There was a moment where Bukayo Saka, I think in the Europa League group stages, spoke about how even though Aubameyang's the, the main striker and the main man, said, if you get a chance and I'm there, shoot, don't pass to me. If you've got an opportunity to score, take that. And quite similarly, the way that he welcomed, welcomed in Gabriel Martinelli in that summer was uh, spoken about very well. But there's no secret that the players need to do better. Mikel Arteta has taken responsibility for that on m- multiple occasions. And the players will need to stand up to that themselves to to truly improve because you can't improve if you're not self-critical. And that's where maybe that needs to be highlighted more in terms of responsibility rather than rather than blame. I, I don't really like using the word blame, but maybe shifting that to what is the responsibility of the players compared to the manager and how does that translate on a match day, I think that's probably the discussion that is probably more worth having rather than are there still bad bad eggs or bad apples at Arsenal? Yeah, I, 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 I totally get that as well. But I often think that when I when I see when we see inside the dressing room and we see sort of the the relationships that, that some people have, we see it via social media, and of course, it's just a it's a a narrow channel of, of what actually goes on that we see. But a lot of it seems superficial to me. Where, where everything really matters is on the pitch. Dressing room, training grounds, everyone can be the best friends and, and seem to get on and be welcoming. And, 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 and off the pitch, you know, relationships can be good. But on the pitch is, is where it really matters. That's where it's, you know, you want players to, to show their leadership. You want, you know, I remember seeing early on the season, sort of, it was a Lacazette sort of having a real go at one of the youngsters on, or it might be in last season, having a go at one of the youngsters on the pitch. And Aubameyang sometimes just not influencing games. And you can, it's no matter how, if you play well or you play badly, you can still sort of be an influence on the side. And I think that's where it, it, it comes from when it, about characters. Is they're not bad characters per se, but they're not the, the characters that are going to be influential on the pitch when it really matters. Yeah, I understand that. And I think probably the best example in terms of someone that has been doing that on a consistent basis for Arsenal, even though he isn't the most popular player in terms of how he's viewed by both the general public and Arsenal fans is Granit Xhaka. Um, yeah, exactly. Very vocal. That's been seen even more so in the behind closed doors games and left back again last last night against Sheffield United, even though he hasn't played there on paper. He, he takes up those areas a lot anyway. And I spoke to Mikel after the game about it. And he said that Granit Xhaka is great to work with because even if you asked him to play centre forward, he said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll give my best. And I think he's probably the best example of what you're talking about there, David, in terms of a player that embodies the character in terms of, even though maybe they're not the the most gifted player on the pitch, they will be one to drag the team, the youngsters and the senior players through, through a match. And that's probably what Arsenal need a bit more if we just look at in term, a player in terms of what they bring in terms of their character. Yeah, because so much swirls around the modern player, especially, you know, the top players. That's what I was, I was really impressed by Paul Pogba at Tottenham. Do you think Manchester United should move heaven and earth to try and re-sign him, Dave? Yeah, it's a difficult one because these are the performances that we we tend to expect from him. His career there have, have been littered with them rather than sort of being the norm. And I think it, it probably just leads to, to more frustration amongst fans and because that's what he's capable of doing, you know? And... Um, we all know it's if it was just a, a footballing 
if it was just a question of footballing issues, then there's a bigger question to be asked. But I think, you know, because of financial implications and letting him run run his contract down, I, I don't think that's going to be... Uh, they really shouldn't allow that to happen from a financial point of view. But um, certainly if they can get the, the, the Paul Pogba that we, we saw yesterday and get him performing like that in over half the games in the season, then he's, he's more than worth the, the money that they pay for him. Yeah, they've got a few decisions to make, haven't they, oh, Manchester United? Do you think they should try and get Jesse Lingard to stay? Because, OK, if they sell him for, say, £30 million, which is a figure being banded about, does that actually represent a, uh, a bargain for the, the buying club, which one assumes will be West Ham, although Arsenal have been mentioned as well, actually, in, in dispatches? You know, eight goals, three assists in his nine games. That, say, that says everything, doesn't it? It does, but I do also feel is Manchester United under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer the best fit for Jesse Lingard? I think that's the main issue here. Rather than, I, I don't, I don't think it's as simple as should Manchester United keep Jesse Lingard? Obviously, from an outsider's point of view, seeing how he's performed at West Ham, seeing how he's performed before under Jose Mourinho and Louis Van Gaal in particular, I would be inclined to say yes. But does he fit into Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's midfield at the minute? Probably not. We've seen that happen. Well, he didn't play in the Premier League before January. And that's where, even though he is in great form and is very much putting himself in the, in the, in the shop window to go to the Euros with England, if he doesn't fit at Manchester United, then I probably wouldn't be surprised if he chooses to take his career in another direction and choose a different club. West Ham seems, seems a great fit for him. Would he fit at Arsenal? Potentially, because he is a player that is unique in terms of he's able to run beyond the striker, but he can also link play very well and has the energy to press without the ball. So we've seen, say, at Arsenal, those are players that Mikel Arteta likes a lot with Martin Odegaard and Emile Smith-Rowe and even Kaya Saka being played as a number 10 against Sheffield United, but I, I just feel it almost similar to the De Bruyne and Sterling cases, but to a lesser extent, it comes to him analysing his game and figuring out what club is the best fit for his game. If West Ham go on and make the Champions League, then I don't think anyone would be upset with seeing him stay there. But again, that's just me speaking from a very idealistic point of view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if uh, if West Ham do make the Champions League, that'll be the signature achievement of the season. Just want to dwell very briefly, if we could, on uh, the relegation battle, such as it is now. Do you think we had a decisive weekend, David, with you know, Fulham losing late to Wolves and Newcastle you know, coming back to win? First time since February the 6th, I think. Yeah, it was a massive win for for Newcastle, and was it six points now? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's a lot to ask for for teams down there now to to start winning games when they they haven't been doing it all season. It's it's really strange looking looking down there and and, and even now seeing Brighton after after all the the, the plaudits they've been getting this season. It's it's even come this close where they they're still in danger of going down, but. Don't think there's going to be any problem with them either. I think now we're, where we're at now is, is probably where we're going to be at the end of the season, mm. and, and 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 deservedly so. Fulham can still come out of it with a lot of credit because from the start they've had they, they've become a lot uh, a lot more solid side. They're, they're playing much better, and hopefully you know Scott Parker will be given the the opportunity to bring them back up again and and be and be stronger for it when they. Uh, you know, if they do come back up again next year, so I think that's um, you know it's it's a good situation for them to be in. But uh, Sheffield United, it's, it's it's been an awful season, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think also you know there is going to be a bounce back possibility if you look at it. Norwich and most probably Watford are going to come straight back up again. So there is that the hope, if you like. Just really, let's look at rather than what's going to happen next season, what's going to happen in the next few days, guys. I'd just like you to. Give me your final four in the Champions League and whether or not you think United and Arsenal will uh, push forward in the Europa League. 
start. Who are your final four? And uh, will Arsenal make your life a lot simpler? <laughs> um, so yeah, my final four for the Champions League are uh, Chelsea, Real Madrid, PSG and Manchester City. I think PSG might be the ones to go on all the way. And then with the Europa League, I, I do see Manchester United going through Obviously, they've got a favourable tie against Granada and they've put themselves in an advantageous position. But I do think they can go another stage with Arsenal. I will <laughs> I will hopefully say they will make my life easier. We all know that's not guaranteed. But with Gabriel Martinelli coming in, I, I would hope that that urgency that he brings will, will come, come to the fore on Thursday and they will be reunited with Unai Emery in the next round. Yeah, I think the narrative will be set on that one, won't it? What do you think, David? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say I hate to be boring, but a lot of people would say, why stop now? Um, <laughs> I, 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 can't, uh, I can't disagree with anything that Art says there. I think, um, you know, Arsenal and United, certainly United should definitely go through. I really fancy uh, Arsenal to... To have enough to go through in the in the four picks for the Champions League, I think that's um, yeah, that should be right. I think. Okay, well, I'll be dare I'll dare to be different then. My final four, I think Chelsea are pretty much home and hosed. There'll be real questions asked if City succumb in Dortmund. Don't think they will, but um, I do take Bayern to win in Paris, and you know this is probably heart ruling head on this one, but. I'd love to think that Liverpool could have just one more of those really heady Anfield nights. Uh, as for the Europa League, I think United will win it and Arsenal's season will end in Prague. What do you think? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Art and David for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 